After what I'd been through, I felt I needed to be by myself for a few days. Maybe a week or two. Or three. Maybe a month. Maybe more. Collect my thoughts. Put the pieces back together. I searched for a place where I had never been. A place I had never heard of. A place no one ever talks about. I went online and found a house for rent. There were no reviews. I would be the first person to rent it. It was a large house with five bedrooms, high ceilings, quiet, plenty of land, a small lake with a rowboat, fishing gear at the tenant's disposal, no neighbors nearby. The information the owner and I exchanged was strictly practical. I didn't disclose anything personal. She didn't pry. I paid for the reservation. Balance due, zero. When the money was on her account, she wrote to me to give me the exact address and to explain where the key was. She gave me her phone number in case I had any difficulty getting there or any questions upon arrival or during my stay. Her home wasn't nearby, no. She lived in Zambia. I didn't mention I had spent eight years in Lusaka. I played the marimba in several Afrobeat bands. There are quite a few really cool clubs on the riverside. I left Zambia when Lou Bell ditched me for a guy who sold counterfeit running shoes. You know, Nike, Adidas, Ben and Jerry's, New Balance, 10 bucks a pair. In the dusty streets of Lusaka, his cheap shoes lasted no more than two or three weeks, a total ripoff. I heard he got into trouble because an unhappy customer of his happened to be the head of a local gang, a notorious guy by the name of Donnie. I loved Lou Bell. I wonder what she's up to these days. She had a drop-dead smile and a wonderful laugh. A great dancer, too. We had a lot of fun together. Anyway, that seems so long ago now and so far away. The house was easy to find. On the outside, it was nondescript, nothing fancy, nothing out of the ordinary. On the front porch, a flower pot was hanging from a beam with three thin chains. There were red-specked yellow pendant flowers that looked like earrings. I raised my arm to rummage for the key, but dozens of seed pods burst and shot in my face. I managed to retrieve the key anyway. I gave the flowers a dirty look, and I opened the door. The first thing that struck me was the fact that it was overheated. There was a note on the sideboard. It said, The thermostat is behind you. And sorry about the flowers. They're yellow jewel weeds, also known as touch-me-nots. Welcome. Hmm. 
I lowered the temperature. I went back out, took my luggage and my typewriter out of the car, and left them in the entrance. Then I took a walk around the house. This was a house that people had lived in for a long time. The furniture showed wear and tear. The hardwood floors were dark and scraped. The paint on the walls was faded. Here and there, a few cracks reflected the passing of time. I found it odd that when the owners had moved away, they had decided to keep the house. I couldn't see any particular value in it. It seemed to be more of a liability than an asset. From an architectural standpoint, it was bland. The location was uninteresting. It was relatively far from the nearest town, which, as I soon discovered, was one of the dullest places I had ever been to. In retrospect, I can't even remember the name of the town. I noticed that even those who live there don't know it either, and they just don't care. They call it here, as if they had no alternative. Yeah, I'm from here, born and raised, they'll all say, in the flattest voice. No pride at all, just bitterness. I walked around the house. On the ground floor, there was a huge kitchen with a long table that could easily sit 10 people. On the counter near the sink, there was a bottle of bourbon that was half full. In the living room, two armchairs and three beat-up sofas surrounded a large square coffee table. No TV, no stereo. There was a door on the far side that opened onto a small bedroom which had its own bathroom. Ground floor and suite master bedroom as it said online. Telltale signs and the general layout and arrangement of the facilities pointed to the fact that these had been the living quarters of a person who was disabled. Yes, indeed. The framed photograph on the wall showed a young woman in an antiquated wooden wicker wheelchair surrounded by her parents and two brothers. At least, I assume that's who they were. She was the only one who was smiling. The others stared sternly at the camera. Maybe the person who took the photograph cracked a joke that only she found funny and that the others didn't get. She must have had a special relationship with that person. Not everyone has the same sense of humor. I wondered whether the young woman was now the owner I had been in touch with. If so, it mustn't be easy to live with a disability in Zambia. I know whereof I speak. Maybe she knows Lou Bell. I went to the second floor. The stairwell walls were covered with dozens of six-by-four photographs, some of them black and white. It must have taken me nearly half an hour to make it all the way up, because I examined every single one. The family had had quite a few horses over the years, of course, I thought. I drove by the stables. They're halfway down the lane. I could see a little girl on a palomino on several photographs. She was around eight, then maybe ten, then twelve or thirteen, then around sixteen, and then... No more photographs. No more Palomino. 
on the pictures after the days of the Palomino, there were no smiles. Maybe the person who took those photographs wasn't good at telling jokes, I thought. When it comes to photography, humor matters. Then again, humor matters when it comes to pretty much everything in life. But not everyone has the same sense of humor. The first two bedrooms were bare, no furniture, nothing at all. There were just a few flattened mosquitoes on the wall, surrounded by dried specks of blood. I wondered how long a dead mosquito can stay stuck on a wall before eventually falling to the floor, to its second death. They say cats have nine lives. Some mosquitoes suffer two deaths. But in the third room, there was a table with a very old camera on it. And in the corner, there was the wheelchair. Had she used an upstairs bedroom? Why? Or why did someone bring the wheelchair upstairs? On the wall behind the wheelchair, there was a framed group photograph that said, Class of 51. I moved the wheelchair to examine it. One of the wheels was stiff and squeaked. A guy crouching in the front row with his hair combed back had a broad grin on his face. He looked just like me. How strange. As I was staring at the picture, I thought I heard footsteps. Hello? Is anybody there? I went halfway down the stairs. There wasn't anyone. I noticed the wind had started blowing from the north. The treetops were no longer still. I went downstairs and decided to lock the car, but said to myself, don't be ridiculous, you're paranoid. I looked at the digital key in my hand and pressed it anyway. Then I put it back in my pocket. The car's headlights briefly beamed on a painting above the mantelpiece that I hadn't initially noticed. A man with one hand in his pocket was looking at a painting of a man with one hand in his pocket, looking at a painting of a man with one hand in his pocket, looking at a nice mise en abîme, I thought. I examined the painting as closely as I could, squinting as my eyes were drawn in deeper and deeper towards the center. Then I realized that in the foreground behind the first man, there was a gloved hand that was holding a long knife. Yeah, yeah, that's not bad, but the climax was quite predictable. It's, how should I say, a bit bromide, you know, hackneyed. The kind of cheap roman noir they sell in train stations. Of course, one anticipates that the protagonist is going to be in a life-and-death situation, but you make it too obvious it's overstated. And from a cultural perspective, I think you should do better. Bring in a genuine artistic element. Create a gap between pure art and the noir aspect. Try again. I went downstairs and decided to lock the car, but said to myself, don't be ridiculous, you're paranoid. 
I looked at the digital key in my hand and pressed it anyway. Then I put it back in my pocket. The car's headlights briefly beamed on a painting above the mantelpiece that I hadn't initially noticed. It was The Scream by Edvard Munch. The masterpiece had been stolen from the Museum of Modern Art in Oslo, Norway, years ago. Headlights beamed on it again. But this time, it wasn't my car. Yeah, that's better, but it's much too short. Especially compared with the long setup that instills a dark and menacing atmosphere. Try again. Don't hesitate to make the ending longer. Try to create a stark contrast with the tone of the setup. Refer to art history, maybe, in order to make the reader lose any temporal bearings. That creates discomfort, as you know. And produce something the reader does not expect at all. I went downstairs and decided to lock the car, but said to myself, don't be ridiculous. You're paranoid. I looked at the digital key in my hand and pressed it anyway. Then I put it back in my pocket. The car's headlights briefly beamed on a very colorful, hyper-realistic square painting above the mantelpiece that I hadn't initially noticed. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but the style was a blend of the hyper-realism masters Domenico Gnoli, Conrad Klapheck, and, of course, Roland Del Col. It was a clown pretending to be a mime trapped inside the frame. He seemed terrified. Your only way out of the painting is to jump out towards the front into the living room, I said out loud. Now here I am talking to a clown who's stuck in a painting, I thought to myself. This could be a metaphor for my life, actually. I need a drink, or some sleep, or both. Just then, I heard a knock on the door. This was not my paranoid state of mind knock. This was real. Bald fist on wood, pounded three times in quick succession. I froze. In the moment, I knew I was vulnerable, totally exposed, all alone, not knowing what to expect from the possibly very unwelcoming townsfolk. What do I do now? I said to myself. I was considering my options when behind the front door, someone cheerfully shouted, Hi, we're here to pick up the painting. Hello, Dolores said you would be here. We saw your car out front. We parked ours next to it. I opened the door and noticed it was now gently raining. I faced a woman in full clown makeup. She was wearing the same white satin suit with polka dots as the clown in the painting and the same purple wig. She said her name was Wendy and apologized for the inconvenience. Over her shoulder, I saw the car, a 1976 red Volkswagen Beetle with white wall tires. There were seven, no, eight. No, 
nine, nine other clowns standing around it, smoking cigarettes. Two of them walked up to the porch with a flat, square box. They said hello, proceeded to the fireplace, removed the painting, and placed it in the box. Perfect fit. Made to measure. They thanked me and left. Enjoy your stay, Wendy said with her oversized smile. For a short moment, I stared at the bare, umbral square on the wall. Then I walked back to the front door. The ten clowns were, somehow, all getting into the beetle with the painting. The engine revved up, and it drove away. When it was out of sight down the gravel lane, I rubbed my eyes, went to the kitchen, and poured myself a short glass of bourbon. I took a sip and looked out the window at the space where they had parked their car, where the gravel was still dry. All of a sudden, it was framed in by colorful flowers that popped out of the cigarette butts they had left on the ground.